Hello, and welcome to Patreon episode 17. His Dark Materials, Lantern Slides from the main trilogy. It is a Sunday evening where Chloe and Eliana are. It is me, Chloe, one of your hosts. It is me. It is I, Eliana, another one of your hosts. <laughs> I was telling Eliana we're going to be really loose for this episode, and she's like, aren't we always loose? I think we are, right? I thought that was how we are. Are we? Maybe. I don't know. Sometimes I don't think we are. We could be a little more limber. Sometimes we gotta let our hair down. My hair's so heavy. <laughs> this is why. This is my input for today. It is getting really long. It's again. really long, and you know I was pretty tired today, and I put my hair in a bun. I was like, oh, my hairs are so heavy, but then the bun was like even <laughs> more heavy. So I had to like put, you know, wow. you know where you put the bun all the way on top of your head. I'm like, this will evenly distribute the yes. weight. Yes. I understand. Sometimes I'll do that, but then it's like too heavy. Head's too heavy. Got to take it down. Scalp hurt. I don't know. It's hard. It's a hard life. I uh, I'm, I'm sipping a drink tonight. I don't. Are you not sipping a drink? Uh, I'm sipping good old water. Wow, I'm so <laughs> proud of you. I drank a lot last night. So. Oh right, right. Well, you know me. It's on a work night, so I am standing in day. Drinking like the good authority ain't looking. Well, okay. So, yes, but also Jesus' first miracle, as a reminder to everyone, was the wedding at Cana, where he's like, let's turn the water into wine, or the party's (laughs) gonna die. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Jesus resurrecting himself, resurrecting parties. Well, we hit a big milestone. I know that it's almost 2020. 2020! But we have a bigger milestone to talk about before that. A milestone that could not be possible without all of our patrons. You guys are our reason to live and record (laughs) 80 times a week. Yes, our reason to put out episodes over and over. And we have continued to do that. And by doing that, we have hit 100 public episodes. So not counting the 17 episodes uh, or 15 since there are two episodes that were made public, but the 15 episodes of patron episodes that you guys get only, there are 100 public episodes of Girls Gone Canon podcast on the internet. Yes, so thank you so much, everyone. This kind of snuck up on us, this milestone. Next thing we know, Chloe's just like, what is this? 100. Hundo. 100. 100. I'm kind of surprised. I'm... I feel like, you know, when I was a kid. But on episode one. On episode one, season one of Chloe would have been me starting projects and never finishing them. Yeah. Right? Like doing gymnastics, quitting, doing dance, trying to quit. My mom being like, you have to finish it out this year and then you can quit. Uh, and doing like every type of dance and doing that, by the way, just putting that out there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but this we didn't quit. Yeah. So. There's time. It's special There's to me. Time. I don't know. I think we're stuck together for a while. Like four years, five years. Seven years at the rate we're going. Yeah. Maybe ten. I mean. We will not no. quit. Um, but we have you guys to keep us going. You guys inspire us with new episodes just today. Michael Yane, one of our patrons and friends, sent us an email that had a really cool idea for a Patreon episode for the future. And I I was very inspired by it. So thank you for sharing your ideas with us. You guys can always hit us a message on Patreon, an email on Gmail. 
at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com or a message or tweet on Twitter. We're active there as well at girlsgonecanon. We really appreciate your support in the last year and couple years for some of you. Oh, you were giving uh, all the ways to contact us. It's just like, wow, is the episode over already? <laughs> nope, nope, just spinning it early. Well, next month, we do have an idea for a patron episode. Eliana, tell us about that. Yes. So, I don't remember if I left this in for the House Valerian episode or not, but as we were talking about things, we were like, wow, the Maiden Vault, that should be an episode. How have we not thought to do a patron episode on that before? So, January 2020, we're going to start the decade off looking at the women, the maidens of the Maiden Vault. Not all were maidens. Lots about the era that we should probably be chatting about. Uh, if you guys are big as Song of Ice and Fire fans, you'll know this has not come up in the Fire and Blood series yet. We've seen very minimal amounts of it in the world of Ice and Fire. I'm excited for Fire and Blood Part 2 just so we can get some of that info about Aegon the Unworthy, Aegon the Fourth, and of course the girls of the Maiden Vault, and oh... You know, some of what they led to, like the Black Fires. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think George finds this time to be really intriguing for him. Apparently he what, wanted to write a novella from the POV of Aegon IV, which is, I guess, an idea. I would be more interested in Baylor's uh, yeah. thoughts, just because he truly seemed to believe his religion. Yeah, so... It'd be interesting. So I'm looking forward to doing that episode. Yeah, me too. Like a lot. Yeah. I think that'll be fun. <laughs> I'm really excited about that. You know, I would love to do a lot of episodes next year. If you guys have ideas for your 2020 Patreon episodes, please, please, please reach out. Uh, we'll make a post and feel free to contribute to it this week or next week or whenever you see it. I would really love, love, love on the His Dark Materials train to do a LaBelle Sauvage episode. But that would require <laughs> a little bit of work because it can't just be a dusty discussion <laughs> the entire time. I would need Eliana to be here. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that today. I was like, I guess at some point we would do we would do a read through of LaBelle Sauvage and the Secret Commonwealth. And I was like, I guess I'd have to finish the books to do that yeah and i do want to post that as well for patrons listening i am working on formulating a chronological read through of all of the his dark materials pieces whether they be main trilogy added with the books of dust and of course these side pieces like the collectors or uh you know lee and yorick with once upon a time in the north i want to put that together i'm gonna to make a little thing about it, put it out on Patreon for you guys, but Eliana needs to abide by it, meaning she needs to get her button gear and finish the books of dust that are out. Well, He's gonna put one out by the time you finish them. I mean, that doesn't sound, like, bad for me. That means I don't have to wait for the next book, you know? Yeah, that sounds like a horrible thing to have to do, waiting for a book. I would never, ever have to feel that way. <sighs> anyway, so, yeah. Chloe's not the only one who wants me to finish La Belle Sauvage. Lo and Warren ripping into me on Twitter. I'm like, man, maybe Eliana will be done with that book by then. Yup, maybe, maybe. I mean, Lo is finished The Secret Commonwealth. Oh, I'm just letting everyone down. Yeah. Uh, betrayal. Betrayal. 
betrayal. Well, we're going to jump into some lantern slides. For those of you that have no clue what this episode is about, (laughs) uh, this is going to be an episode with main trilogy spoilers, and there will be a dusty discussion at the end, spoiling the books of dust and any of the side pieces. Very light Dusty discussion spoilers will be sprinkled throughout, like not real spoilers, but there might be some very subtle knife discussion about uh, the books of dust because there's just some stuff that's too much, too much can't just be kept to the dusty discussion, especially because some of it pertains to things that happen, right? Or like is a look into the future, and Secret Commonwealth takes place in the future. Yeah, absolutely. This I know. <laughs> this much I know. Depending on the book that you're reading, if you're reading the omnibus version by Random House, you'll have a more of a text-based lantern slide. However, if you have the ebooks, which I have, you might actually have real lantern slides, which are notes from Lord Asriel's desk uh, on Jordan College note paper. We're not going to go into those. They are interesting. I don't think there's enough to really chit-chat about. There's some stuff on zombies that we talk about in the books from Africa. Um, There's some stuff about energy. Just some discoveries as Asriel basically discovers the stuff that we have been discovering while we follow mostly Lyra's journey. So the omnibus lantern slides are what we are covering in this episode. Yes, and... A quick, like, forward about the lantern slides. A lot of them are, like, little vignettes. Uh, some of the characters or some of the places or even ideas that are explored within those three main books. And I think we're going to just read aloud what Philip Pullman has to say about his lantern slides. Yeah. Sometimes it becomes possible for an author to revisit a story and play with it, not to adapt it to another medium. It's not always a good idea for the original author to do that, nor to revise or improve, that's in quotes, it. Tempting though that is, it's too late. You should have done that before it was published, and your business now is with new books, not old ones. But... (laughs) Does this hurt? To read no, out loud? No, never. But simply to play. And in every narrative there are gaps, places where, although things happened and the characters spoke and acted and lived their lives, the story says nothing about them. It was fun to visit a few of these gaps and speculate a little on what I might see there. As for why I call these little pieces lantern slides, it's because I remember the wooden boxes my grandfather used to have, each one packed neatly with painted glass slides showing scenes from Bible stories or fairy tales or ghost stories or comic little plays with absurd-looking figures. From time to time, he would get out the heavy old magic lantern and project some of these pictures on a screen as we sat in the darkened room with the smell of hot metal and watched one scene succeed another, trying to make sense of the narrative and wondering what St. Paul was doing in the story of Little Red Riding Hood, because they never came out of the box in quite the right order. I think it was my grandfather's magic lantern that Lord Asriel used in the second chapter of the Golden Compass. Here are some lantern slides, and it doesn't matter what order they come in. I love this. If you guys are following our regular A Song of Ice and Fire podcast, which is kind of what we launched our main podcast with, you'll know that we talk about some things called So Spake Martins, which are things that the author of that series, 
George R.R. Martin, who is not living in the past in his books right now. Uh, (laughs) Just to put that out there. (laughs) But he has something called So Spake Martins, which is where he says things sometimes out of context in interviews. Sometimes they're deliberately things he puts on the internet in a blog post or in a tweet about a character or etc. etc. You know, on message boards. Yada yada, used to be some Q&As back in the day in the 90s, you know, some AOL Messenger chat room Q&As. Oh my god. You guys remember those, right? I do. Yes. But yes. I might be part of the end of the generation to be able to say that, I guess, now that I say it out loud. I guess people have, what, now the youths have Discord and Slack. But Slack. I think Slack is not really used. Slack is, like, How's much that? more corporate. They have Reddit AMAs. Yeah, that's true. I think they're more into the Discords thing. But, yeah, yeah I, I was talking about, Reddit. like, chat rooms in general. But, yeah, you're right. If you're yeah. talking about, like, him being on AOL chat rooms, that is more like the AMA. Reddit AMA. Yeah. <laughs> but I also think it's funny that this is basically Pullman's so spake Pullman's, right? Like, he's putting them in his own books, too, which is so fun. It's extra scenery that... He workshopped, sandboxed, you know, just didn't have a place to put it. Here it is. I think that uh, he also refers to the story of Little Red Riding Hood very often in interviews in different manners. I just saw him referencing it Hmm. with the Rolled Doll story, saying that if that's the only version of the story you've read, then you're out of your mind. You need to check other fairy tales, too, to see their versions. And I thought that was an interesting take, especially in this regard, him talking about the perspectives of a story and how it's told, and him reflecting that here in his lantern slides, right? He's bringing other perspectives and other sides of characters that we might not have seen yet. Yeah, now that kind of makes me wonder what's like, what's the deal with Philip Pullman and Little Red Riding Hood? Exactly! I'm wondering it too. I really think that there is something about it as silly as it sounds. I I don't know, you gotta... I think, the, look at that story in this context at some point. Is there something I'm missing about, like, Little Red Riding Hood? I don't know. It must have obviously been a fairy tale that has totally, totally, totally affected him. Maybe it was the interjection of St. Paul into Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, That's maybe. That's very interesting for him. He's been trying to get St. Paul out of Little Red Riding Hood for years, which is why he has his very anti-religious views in his work. <laughs> That's what it is. So this first vignette, this first lantern slide from The Golden Compass. Jordan College, like a great clockwork mechanism with every part connected ultimately to every other, and all slowly and heavily ticking despite the fur of dust on every cog, the curtains of cobweb draped in every corner, the mouse dirt, the insect husks, the leaf skeletons blown in every time the wind was in the east. Rituals and habits whose origins no one could remember, but which no one wanted to disturb. The great wheels and the small, the pins and the levers, all performing their functions despite the wheezing and the creaking and the groaning of ancient timber. Sometimes the individual parts, a servant or a scholar, forgot precisely what their function was in relation to the whole, but never that the whole had a function. And it was enough to do again what you had done yesterday and every day before that and trust to custom. It's funny that we don't really get a lot of Jordan in the main series, right? You get it in the first book for maybe, what, a chapter and a half, two chapters, three chapters, and then suddenly you get no Jordan, uh, no Oxford. And you do get it back come Secret Commonwealth, tiny bit in La Belle Sauvage, but 
really, we don't have a lot of Jordan until the Secret Commonwealth showing some of these really traditional things from the scholars and their rituals. Yeah, I... It seemed like it was something he wanted to pay homage to initially as just a jumping off point. I mean, Pullman has also taught at quite a few universities. I wonder to what extent all of this is just him reflecting on his own experiences, right? Like, clean your fucking desks, everyone. Why are there cobwebs everywhere? And dead (laughs) insects, my god. But also... Who was it? I want to say it was um, the Dark Material podcast. They were talking about Oxford and how Philip Pullman was like, I actually had to play it down. My depiction of Oxford, he's like, I can't even describe Oxford to international audiences. They'd be like, no, that's too weird. But that's apparently how it actually is. And even Dark Material podcast was was confirming to like, yeah, it's pretty strange place. Wow. Well, and he would know he was in Oxford for a very long time. He actually began teaching children somewhere around 1970, aged 9 to 13 at Bishop Kirk Middle School, and also wrote school plays, and that was somewhere in North Oxford in Summertown, and he stopped teaching about 16 years later. So, long span of teaching, absolutely. He got married in 1970 as well. So I think that little fantastical bit of uh, fairy tale and storytelling was even back then sprouting. He had a lot of different things that changed his life and different experiences that he's very much so implanted into his works. He loves T.S. Eliot, and his first love of that actually came from when he was at a school concert when he was younger. Hilarious. He, right? He remembers these bearded guys coming on stage and... Uh, kind of chanting journey of the magi a cold coming we had of it just the worst time of the year for a journey in such a long journey the ways deep and the weather sharp the very dead of winter i think that's a great way to start the northern lights lantern Mm -hmm. slides yeah and it does start with jordan yes the next lantern slide to discuss is lyra hanging about the castle mill boatyard Each Egyptian had their particular patterns for decorating their boats, based on simple floral designs, but becoming more and more complex and fanciful. And the next one is separate, but connected to that. Lyra watching old Piet van Poppel, touching up his boat one day and laboriously copying the rose and lily pattern he was using, and then back in her room, trying to paint it on her second best dress, (laughs) before realizing that it would be better embroidered. And very soon after that, having pricked her fingers countless times and snapped the threads and lost all patience with the task, throwing it away in disgust and having to explain its absence to Mrs. Lonsdale. (laughs) Uh, I've got a lot on this in the dusty discussion later, but Lyra must have driven Mrs. Lonsdale wild, right? There's this line in the first book from Mrs. Lonsdale to Lyra. The number of times you've been told about going out there... Look at you. Just look at your skirt. It's filthy. Take it off at once and wash yourself while I look for something decent that ain't torn. Why you can't keep yourself clean and tidy? But at the same time, Lyra's never had decorative clothing before like this. It's a real sign of her wanting to maybe honor and get to know the Egyptian culture, since she really didn't have a culture of her own to love. And the beauty and the idea of flowers in a garden, as well as, well, some of your garden analysis, Eliana, that a lot of people may have just heard in the end of our His Dark Materials season finale, season one, episode eight, Betrayal Review. 
Yes. And along with that, um, something that I thought of here, you know, like what you were saying about this quote of Mrs. Lonsdale telling Thyra to take off her skirt and it's filthy and to, to keep herself clean. I've seen people talk about how like Lyra reminds them of Arya. Oh yeah, from A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, from A Song of Ice and Fire. And I will point out quickly that Northern Lights came out before A Game of Thrones. I think there was just something going on in the 90s and people were like, spunky little girls. So Plucky. Plucky, yes. <laughs> so just yeah. throwing out there that Lyra precedes Arya. Yeah. I love this line that we get later in the series about Lyra's clothes when she's shopping with Mrs. Coulter. Because I think it's something to tie back here. People don't think of that all of Lyra's clothes had come to her through Mrs. Lonsdale. And a lot of them had been handed down and much mended. She had seldom had anything new. And when she had, it had been picked for wear and not for looks. And she had never chosen anything for herself. Hmm. So... Mrs. Coulter's sparkle and shine and all that glitters is not gold that emanates off of her. Not only is done in easily by, you know, her telling Lyra she could be something extraordinary if you're watching the TV series, or of course in book with how she charmed Lyra, but even down to the clothing. Clothing represents freedom to Lyra here. I think that's a really good point um, that I hadn't remembered or thought of. And part of that charm for Lyra, right? Because, yeah, it's, she's finally able to choose things for herself but it's like wow nice thing there's that line that they brought into the show of like why can't we have nice things or something like that to pan yeah she deserves it oh oh yeah it was Poor she's girl. like don't we deserve to have nice things also yeah and it's so sad because daphne keen's voice breaks at the right time there to get me just like in my feels <laughs> little lyra when huh. she's like She's nice. And her voice breaks. Yeah. Uh. She's like, don't we deserve to have nice things? And then at the end of the book, no. Your friend no is dead. No one's ever told me I could be extraordinary before. <sighs> Real emo hour. <laughs> <laughs> is, it a, is it an episode? Right. If Chloe's not crying. No. The answer is no. So this next lantern slide we have on a, on a more uh, upbeat note. Lee Scoresby attracted north by the money being made in the gold rush and making none, but acquiring a balloon by chance in a card game. He was the lover of a witch from the Karelia region. Briefly, but she was killed in battle. She spoiled me for women younger than 300. But he had plenty of lovers all the same. Huh. Interesting. Dating witches isn't new for Lee Scoresby? Interesting. It, also interesting, the younger than 300 line. Yeah, right, because wait, isn't Serafina Pecola uh, approximately 300 or so years old? She is. Hmm. She is. So I was like, interesting. Chloe's onto something. I'm just saying, it really does feel like a nod. With all the behind the scenes crap that Pullman tries to Pullman. Oh my god. <laughs> Like, you know, Lyra and Will kissing or etc. Like all that stuff where it's like, hoo-hoo, only Pullman knows. Uh, I feel like this is one of them that he's like, wink, wink. They liked each other, but sometimes adults get caught up in war and tragedy and get deaded. <laughs> and die. Yeah. yeah. I thought that the Corellia clan, or uh, the witch from the Corellia region, sorry, 
That was cool because Karelia is real life in northwest Russia. It's a republic and it has kind of a crazy history. It has 60,000 lakes within it. It's passed hands over centuries back and forth between Finland and Russia and Sweden. Finland was forced to give territories to the Soviet Union after the Winter War in 1940. Uh, the Moscow Peace Treaty made them do that. And most Finnish citizens were forced to evacuate. This land is regionally really close between both Russia and Finland, so it's been a huge matter of conquering back and forth in history. Both countries today claim there's no custody battle, and Finland is not asking for the ceded lands back, but it's totally like a tense topic. Thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I didn't know anything about this. There's nothing really else about the uh, Karelia witches, but that was interesting to me. I did think that was a good one. Yeah. This this part about Lee Scoresby acquiring his balloon by chance in a card game. Offhand line here, slightly more detail in Once Upon a Time in the North, which, you know, we've discussed before. Small, tiny novella by Philip Pullman focusing on Lee Scoresby and Yorick. Next we have another lantern slide. Speaking of bears. Asriel Among the Bears. Eo for Ratnison. I'm going to be entirely frank with you followed by a string of confident and overbearing lies. Had he noticed the Bear King's doll demon, the clue that he was unbear-like enough to be tricked? Or was it just luck? But he knew the bears well enough. He was very like his daughter. Oh, Cynthia's here. Cynthia, she's a really cool dancer. (sighs) Yeah, this is a cool vignette. It shows that cohesion between Lyra and Lord Azrael. How, yeah, they say it explicitly that Lord Azrael's also like his daughter. And considering that we see in the story very, very clear similarities between Mrs. Coulter and her lying, especially to Yofer and later on to Metatron, and we see how it parallels so nicely with Lyra, I think it's uh, pretty cool that we have this from her father as well. Yeah. This does make me question his nature in regards to, like, The Egyptians, they really think he's hot shit, right? Because he helped them during the Great Flood. Mm -hmm. It's a huge piece of history we hear about in the main trilogy. And we actually see some of his help that he sends in La Belle Sauvage. Once you finish that book, you'll know. So it kind of makes me go, oh, so was he just making sure he always had the Egyptians on his side because he thought they were like a an intense ally to have? I'm sure part of him maybe cared, but... You know, he's kind of a free thinker, so... Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Also, I'm not sure if anyone's noticed in previous episodes, because I only figured this out recently, that I had been reading it as Rackinson for a long time. Rackinson. Yeah. I was like, I see. I put the N in the wrong place. It's okay. I still refuse to say Moat Caitlin. I noticed that, and I was like, I'm going to let her live her life. I just can't do it. My mouth won't. I go to do it every time. Uh, One time I was like driving a friend somewhere and we kept missing the exit like four times in a row, even though I went back four times and that's how my mouth feels. I'm like, nope. Guess we're just not doing it. Moat Kate. (laughs) Uh, So our next lantern slide. Mrs. Coulter selected her lovers for their power and influence, but it did no harm if they were good looking. Did she ever become fond of a lover? Not once. Damn. She could not keep her servants, either. I mean, she murdered her last lover. Kinda. 
No, the one before that. Oh. I'm not talking about Azrael. I mean, the last chronological person she likely fucked, she murdered. Boreal, right? Yeah. Yeah. She poisoned that motherfucker. She did. She did. <laughs> I guess she wasn't fond of him. Clearly not. Clearly there was no attachment. I do, like, find it so interesting. I guess that means she also isn't fond of Azrael. But, I mean, I guess it could Good. make sense. Like, they clearly were passionate lovers. They probably had amazing hate sex also. They have Ooh. a really fraught relationship. It's really toxic and not okay. Uh, and also, like, imagine they're going to spend eternity together falling down an abyss. Spending eternity in a hole with someone you aren't fond of. Interesting. Also, I, are they likening here that apparently, what, Mrs. Coulter feels about her lovers, that they're basically, like, her servants? It's, it's, a fun, it's an interesting implication right there. I'm gonna level. I just did a shot of Stoli's vodka because oh, I started I know. thinking about Asriel and Coulter fucking. Oh, I didn't know that was why. I just saw I just saw this happening and I was like, alright. Yeah, and in Mrs. Coulter's mind, every servant is a dog. I guess so. Ugh. Also, imagine spending eternity falling down an abyss with them. When you said that, that got real for me. I was like, nope. Yeah. Imagine how much Asriel would neg you and how much Mrs. Coulter would just gaslight you. I mean, maybe that's why it works as Metatron's punishment, you know? That's just what's going to happen to him for forever. He just has to what if, listen to that. What if Asriel is Coulter's will? I mean, clearly. That's clearly what it is. I really want you to finish Commonwealth because, like, <laughs> I feel like Lyra has a lot of Mrs. Coulter's depressive tendencies hmm. in this. Like, I don't know if depressive is the right word, but her some of her darker tendencies that are more self-harming than harming others. And I just feel like you're going to have a lot to say about it. We're going to, once you read that, you're going to be like, huh, this reframes a lot of my thoughts. Hmm. Okay. Is it making you finish La Belle Sauvage faster? Me saying that? Maybe. Anything could be <gasps> happening right now uh, in my head. Read me the next lantern slide. <laughs> Lyra had a crush on Dick Orchard, the older boy who could spit farther than anyone else. She would hang about the covered market, gazing at him hopelessly, and cover her pillow with clumsy kisses just to see what it felt like. I used to do this with a Justin Timberlake poster when I was in fourth grade. Fascinating. He had ramen noodle hair at the time. He did have ramen noodle hair! I was 10. Uh, but that's like what people were into. Yeah. I was into it. I covered it with a different lipstick every day. Fascinating. Yep. Uh, also fascinating. I guess Lyra's taste. Guys, <laughs> it also shows her childishness. Um, she likes a boy who can spit farther than anyone else. I love that. That's hilarious. And... <laughs> You know, it, it does show us where she is in life, right? That she's on the cusp of being interested, showering her pillow with those clumsy kisses, especially with, you know, how the whole story ends. Yeah, and she definitely has a type, right? No spoilers. We're going to come back to this in the dusty discussion to uh, Dick Orchard because he does come back. It is a character wow. that, believe it or not, Pullman pays attention to. But she does have a type. This is a description from the Secret Commonwealth, with no spoilers, of Dick Orchard. His hair was black and curly and glossy. His features were large, with brilliant dark irises and clear whites. His features were well-defined, with skin healthy and golden. It was the sort of face that would look good in a photogram. 
Nothing blurred or smudged about it. So that's Dick Orchard's physical description. Does it remind you of anyone? Um, it does. It does. <laughs> and that's not the last person with that description that she comes across. There's a person that I'm not sure what to think. Maybe it's going to be a little bit of a, uh, a Raylo situation. I don't know. You'll find out about it when you get there. But it does remind me of a couple lines from The Amber Spyglass and The Subtle Knife. One where John Fa and Farter Coram pay attention to Will and Lyra and how the boy with the straight black eyebrows was aware of every second of where she was and made sure he never strayed far from her. And then, of course, in The Subtle Knife, his fierce, unhappy glare and his tight-set lips and the jutting jaw. Uh, very defined features, very dark features. So Lyra has a type, for sure. <laughs> Murderers, bears. Wait, where where does Yorick fit into this? I guess he has strong, well-defined features, too, if you think yeah, about it. Yeah, tight-set lips, yep. jutting jaw, fierce, unhappy glare. Yep, brilliant, brilliant, unhappy eyes. Unsmudged. <laughs> <laughs> so the next lantern slide every year the domestic burser at jordan would send for lyra or have her tracked down and caught and have a photogram taken lyra submitted indifferently and scowled at the camera it was just one of the things that happened it didn't occur to her to ask where the pictures went as a matter of fact they all went to lord asriel but he would never have let her know oh Aww. man i didn't sign up for feelings <laughs> Yeah, obviously we all know Lord Asriel's her father by now. I know it's not the same, but it does remind me a little of how they portrayed like those tests that they were taking in Bullvanger in the show with the with the photos. And it, it does take some inspiration from the books. They do some stuff like that. But it's kind of funny to me that Lyra never wondered like who these photos were for. She just was like, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to just leave my image out there for everyone. Absolutely. So then we have this longer lantern slide. Benny, the pastry cook at Jordan, whose demon was male, sitting in the warm cabin with his cousins, the Costa family, and listening to the story of how Lyra hijacked their boat and their demand that someone discipline the brat. Their indignation was too much to bear without laughing. In return, he told them about how she rescued a starling from the kitchen cat only for it to die anyway, and of how she plucked and gutted it clumsily and smuggled it into the great ovens, hoping to retrieve it when it was cooked. But the chef sent her packing, and in the bustle, the starling was sent to the table with the rest of the feast and was eaten with relish by the master. The truth came out when the doctor had to be summoned to deal with the poor man's suffering. Lyra was unrepentant. It wasn't for him, she said. He's obviously got a <laughs> delicate stomach. I could have eaten it. She was banned from the kitchens for a term. Seems to me we got off lately, said Tony Costa. I knew you'd appreciate this one because that bung. Yes, I was like, oh, the bung is in this one. The bung. Hashtag the bung. So Pullman thinks about the bung. And I like that <sighs> Benny is mentioned here. You yeah. remember Benny. He was the one that spied on Lyra for John Fa that whole time. So it's great to see him doing just that here. Yeah, and of course, Benny being one of those people who has a male, who, who has a demon the same sex as him. And yes. So for what it's worth... I looked it up. I do like starlings as birds. I, I always admire them when I see them, you know, flitting about. But turns out, yes, you can, in fact, eat starlings. So, you know, oh. Lyra might be right. 
The master That's might just have a delicate stomach. They're just like small bird sparrows, or like they're they're not sparrows, but they're similar in wow. size. For survival purposes, great to know. Yeah, you can eat starlings. You can't eat bear liver. Definitely eat uh, seal lard. Yes. So lots of things we're learning <laughs> culinarily in the series. Serafina, Scoresby, I mean Picala, on her cloud pine would find a still field of air at night and listen to the silence. Like the air itself, which was never quite still, the silence was full of little currents and turbulence, of patches of density and pockets of attenuation, all shot through with darts and drifts of whispering that were made of silence themselves. It was as different from the silence of a closed room as fresh spring water is from stale. Later, Serafina realized that she was listening to dust. I love that. Wow. I mean, some of these aren't, like, that deep. They are just there to, like, add color and richness to the story. And I like like this one. And I just love this language of this water analogy of this difference between, you know, of the silences and the fresh spring water from stale. I wonder how much later it was that Serafina realized it was dust, but... Well, that ends the Northern Lights Golden Compass Lantern Slides from the Omnibus Random House published version, and we will move into the Subtle Knife Lantern Slides. Yes. John Perry and the Turquoise Ring. How did he get hold of it? You could tell a story about the ring and everything that had happened to it since it left Lee Scoresby's mother's finger. And you could tell a story about Lee himself, and recount his entire history from boyhood to the moment he sat beside the little hut on the flooded banks of the Yenisei, and saw the shaman's fist open to disclose the well-loved thing that he turned and turned round and round his mother's fingers so long ago. The storylines diverge, and move a very long way apart, and come together, and something happens when they touch, that something would lead Lee to his death. But what happened to the ring? And must still be around somewhere. Okay, so he totally lays this on thick, but then never comes back to it. I mean, I think it might be one of those things, like, later on he asks, there's a question that he poses in one of the lantern slides for the Ember Spyglass we'll get to shortly. I think some of these are just meant to be, like, ooh, mysterious, and, and just sort of posing questions, being fun ideas. It makes me wonder if it's going to come back because there's a lot of different, uh, I don't know, a lot of different like cultural and kind of mysterious things happening in the secret commonwealth. I mean, we're talking traveling to very, very much so an eastern place, not Oxford, very much so not Oxford. Uh, I don't know. I'm just curious to find out if it might come back in the Books of Dust. I think it could. I really think it could come back. I mean, it could. It could. Because, like, it sounds to me as though he's revisiting some of these ideas in other things. Like, we see him revisiting some of these ideas of, like, Lee's past with the novellas, so. Yeah. And along with, you know, Lee's past, it's, I think it's significant that it's, like, a turquoise ring, right? There's a lot of native communities, of course, in the southwest of the U.S., and there's a little bit of a difference of how things developed in this world and the country of Texas. So again, coming back to it, the casting of Lin-Manuel makes sense. 
It absolutely does. And I've seen some people yeah. say that him as Lee was like not their choice. They didn't want it for the show and that it really was taking them out of the experience. And I'm like, you're an idiot. Really? I thought, literally Lee. I thought people came around to it. Some did. Some really didn't. Mm. And also you cannot deny that he and Daphne Keene have such an adorable relationship. They yeah, absolutely. so great. Apparently. It's like the relationship that you need to make that make sense. Yeah. But the th- charm, the charisma. Yeah. I think apparently I've heard like what they both speak Spanish a lot with each other and talk about it, so Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah. So our next lantern slide. A demon is not an animal, of course. A demon is a person. A real cat, face to face with a demon in cat form, would not be puzzled for a moment. She would see a human being. Oh, yeah, so the difference between Kerjava and the window cat slash tabby cat, right, in that last episode of His Dark Materials Season 1, or at the beginning of The Subtle Knife. Yeah, even though the demons look like animals. I I think that they kind of had the fun way of depicting that in the Golden Compass movie. Remember, they all had the shiny rainbow fur? That's true. But it also plays into an idea that we'll see later in the Amber Spyglass, this idea of the flexibility of what does humanity look like? Because they're saying it's not about like the shape of your body, it's more about this like essence and the capacity for conscious thought. And we see it with the Malefa also ending up in the underworld, and then the text mm. tells us there's a bunch of other creatures that don't look like Homo sapiens, but that they are also human. Yeah, like, they are the protagonist of their world. Yeah. They're the, whatever the peoples are there look like. Absolutely. Well said. Our next lantern slide, and I want to up front say, we've been pronouncing Sidigaze incorrectly, technically. Did you know this? It doesn't surprise me. It surprises me none the least. (laughs) Well, apparently it's supposed to be Chitigaze. Oh, you know, because it's basically taken Chita from Gaze. Italian. So this lantern slide is, and I'm going to say it with the wonderful Italian accent, all the time in Chitigatze, the sense of how different a place this could have been if it hadn't been corrupted. How easy it would have been not to make the knife if they'd seen the consequences. A world of teeming plenty, of beautiful seas and temperate weather, of prosperity and peace, and they still wanted more. Yes. So the name Chitigaze comes from the Italian Chita, city, and Gaze, magpies. Thus, it can be loosely translated as the city of magpies. It's mentioned this is because the guild of the Tor Daily Angeli used the subtle knife to steal things that were expensive from other worlds in the way a magpie steals shiny objects, or a Niffler. Uh, oh my god, Nifflers are magpies. The magpie legend. Also Meowths. They're also Meowths. That's true. Throwing it out there. Um, apparently, I guess, like, that legend's been debunked about why magpies, that, that magpies do that, but I think it's still fun. And it's actually why good friend and fellow A Song of Ice and Fire moderator Mighty Isabel actually calls George R. R. Martin a magpie in terms of his storytelling. You know, taking things and weaving it together into its own new thing. Funny. Ah. That makes sense. I had to, it took me a while to understand. I was like, what, why do you keep saying magpie? And she explained. Uh, uh, <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, 
I'm thinking now, you know, about how Chittagaze and the way it's described right now, like how easy it would have been to not make the knife. And then it sounds, again, like its own also Garden of Eden. It's sort of corrupted. They let the evil into their own little garden. And I don't know what it is. Like, is it greed, envy? We get to, like, revisit Chitagaze eventually, right? But, like, I love that scene in The Subtle Knife where Will is just so mad. You know, his, like, fingers are pouring out blood. And he's so mad that the precious salve that, like, I don't know, the keeper in the tower or something uses on him. They're like, oh, this is very precious from another world. He's like, god damn it. It's just Neosporin. You can get this at the fucking drugstore down the street. <laughs> He's like, this is not going to do anything. But it just shows that, you know, Chitagaze's corruption, it had more to do with that want and hunger. Because they, I don't know, they weren't really learning, right? If they did, yeah. they would have used the things that they acquired to better their world. But they can't even make fucking Neosporin. So they weren't looking for knowledge and understanding, but that whole idea of wanting more, wanting to grow up. It's kind of interesting that it's presented almost as a Pandora's box event, right? Mm, yes. That they wanted all this and they released all of this into the world. The specters are because of them, mm. um, because of their greed, right? Those sins that you and I have been talking about, those seven deadly sins. Their greed is what did this. And they, in line with our current world, with if we were in Will's world or if we were in Lyra's world... Uh, this they created this knife 300 years ago. So in line with that, 300 years in the future, Coulter has the demon cages created, and Asriel creates his own demon cages as well in his timeline. Um, I think it's really interesting that men are, you know, reaching beyond what they're supposed to be reaching. They're doing what they're not supposed to do and pressing their limits, but the Chitigatse clan had done this far in, you know history 300 years before yeah and there's like a lot of significance regarding those timelines that uh, we'll get to we'll get to when we get to it yeah the next lantern slide will and his mother visiting an elderly seeming couple in a large house and getting a cold welcome he was puzzled he was too young to understand the conversation the murmuring voices his mother's tears Later, all he remembered was the contempt on the older woman's face, the feeling that these two regarded his beloved mother as dirt, and his savage resolution never to let her be exposed to that brutality again. He was six. He would have killed them if he could. Very much later, he realized they were his father's parents. Will thinking he would kill the older couple if he could. Will, the trustworthy murderer. <laughs> My favorite trustworthy kinslayer. <laughs> ah, next to Jon Snow. Um, God, I, I would love for this to be clarified in the show. I wonder if it's something they'll make a side scene for or do. It feels a little problematic for Elaine, in my opinion. Especially when you throw in the witch that murders John Perry, you know, the one he spurned. His parents disliking Elaine. His whole eagle freedom demon. I would just love to hear some of more of this clarified. What do you what, what do you want clarified? What do you feel is problematic about it? I just think it's interesting that the parents, John Perry's parents, don't approve of Elaine. So why don't they approve of her? Is it because of her disability? Is it because they think it's her fault that John left? Like what? Mm. Why don't they like her? Why would John Perry, who is this very kind man with a good heart, 
who obviously his memory is enough to inspire his son to do good things, but also the connotations that he like likely cheated on Elaine with a witch that he then finally was like, nope, I can't be with you after all. And he like forsake his whole family to, and he ended up being a shaman somewhere where dust is all flowing. You know what I mean? Like, it's just kind of like a, all right, are you a free thinker too, John Perry? Mm. I kind of got the sense that he didn't, that he like spurned the witch and that's why she's mad. Like, not that they ever like were together. Because like the shaman wouldn't fuck the witch. She was like, I'm going to kill you. I don't know. That's just so dramatic. And if that's the case, fuck you, Pullman. Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the sense that I got. Yeah. But I don't know. I don't know. It just looks like it could be played gross. Yeah. I don't know if he knows either, which is why he cut it to this point of time. Hmm. Hmm. We might get some more information later. In our next lantern slide, I love this one. Lyra lying awake on the cold rocks pretending to be asleep, while Will whispered to her demon. How often did she think of that in the days that followed? More like the years that followed. Wow. Just saying, no spoilers. Sad. No spoilers. The next slide. The window in Alaska. Natural that people of the area, if they knew about it at all, would regard it as a doorway to the spirit world, and natural that the other windows into our world should be hard to find and often neglected. People don't like the uncanny. Rather than look fully at something disturbing, they'll avoid it altogether. That house that no one seems to live in for long, that corner of a field the farmer never quite manages to plow, that broken wall that's always going to be repaired but never is. There is such a place on Cater Idris in North Wales, and another in a hotel bedroom in Glasgow. I don't have much to add here, but... Cater Idris. It's funny because there's an episode of Doctor Who where the TARDIS becomes a human. It takes human form. Hmm. The TARDIS is the little space box he flies around in, the blue thing. The police box. Uh, but the TARDIS takes human form and goes by the name Idris. Huh. Apparently, Cater yeah. Idris, which might be a thing that many of you know if you are any of our listeners already in the UK, or maybe you just are in Europe and you know it better, or maybe you are just a better person than I am and know what this is. Uh, it is a mountain in Gwynedd in Wales, and it, the name means Idris's chair, and Idris is likely a giant or something, or might be referring to a prince who won a battle on, on a mountain. So that is what that's referring to. I just kind of think it's cute. Like Philip Pullman still kind of looking at world, the world, right? Through that sort of fairy tale lens and giving this sort of fantastical explanation for everyday, seemingly forgotten things. Keeping cute. the storytelling alive. Yes. So our next lantern slide is Sir Charles Latrum. <laughs> Every morning, Ew. applying two drops of a floral oil to the center of a large silk handkerchief, which he then bundled and tucked into his top pocket in a meticulous imitation of carefree elegance. He couldn't have named the oil. He'd stolen it from a bazaar in Damascus, but the Damascus of another world, where the flowers were bred for the flesh-like exuberance of their scent. As it developed through the day, the fragrance of the oil rotted like a meddler. Sir Charles would lean his head to the left and sniff appreciatively, 
perhaps too frankly for the comfort of most companions. Oh my god, was this not the most pretentious bullshit you've ever read? It's pretty hilarious. Like, yes, I'm really into this scent that smells like rotting bodies. Okay. (laughs) There are some heavier connotations besides just reminding me of old ladies at church who wear too much perfume. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. It is what it reminds me of uh, with the holidays just ending. I had to be Catholic. I know you had to do some Christianity yourself. But there was definitely too much perfume in that in that hall. Yeah, I guess a meddler is a fruit, or, or it's a shrub. Fruit, yeah, it's used in a lot of meals, too, mm. interestingly enough. But, uh, you know, fragrance was used most biblically when a bath or shower wasn't possible. It was important when large groups of people were close together at feasts mm-hmm. or special occasions. Today, since most perfumes are unnatural, it's kind of more of a hindrance. Their scents were made of ointments and oils like myrrh. You can see that in Esther 2.12. Henna, spikenard, saffron, calamus, cinnamon, frankincense, the Song of Solomon 4.13, aloes, and other aromatic gums. And... I also think there's something else Pullman is playing at here, not only in the lantern slides, but later when we establish a very important floral oil in the secret commonwealth, odor of sanctity pops out at me here. Hmm. It's something in the Catholic Church commonly understood to mean a specific scent, usually compared to flowers that comes from saints when they die, like wounds of stigmata. So Hmm. saints like Teresa of Avila and Maravillas of Jesus emitted heavenly scents at death. But there's also another theory out of that, that it smelled heavily of acetone, a similar scent to rotting flowers, which is often brought on by fasting near the time of death, kind of a ketosis scent. Hmm. So what I'm saying is Sir Charles Leitrim is full of shit, but I do think there's something religious behind this. Interesting. The idea of it being religious... Yeah. He was pretty big in the magisterium. Yes, uh, rose oil. Rose oil is what you have to look forward to, Eliana. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. And then finally we have this last lantern slide from The Subtle Knife. Chitagaze. Under the moonlight, deserted and silent and open, the colonnades drenched in soft shadow, the casino garden so perfectly clipped and swept the gravel paths, every house lit, every door open to the warm night. It was the first place where Will had ever felt entirely safe and entirely welcome and entirely at home. Lonely, yes, at first, but he lived in that condition like a fish in water. He would never know how inconceivably strange he appeared at first to Lyra. You know, maybe everyone in Will's world, or if you believe it to be our world, our world lives with this bit of loneliness inside of them. Maybe it's because they don't have their souls personified next to them, like everyone in some of the other worlds has. Lyra knows that Pan's there at the end of the night, and she knows if she didn't have Pan, she'd be lost. Mm. But I don't know. I don't have a little personified animal friend to tell me that I'm not lost. Do you? No. I mean, I do, my cats, but... Maybe if Demons and Dust sent me a statue of it, I could know. (laughs) I could feel less alone. It's only a matter of time. (sighs) It could happen. It could happen for us. Your your idea, though, of everyone living with a little bit of loneliness inside of them reminds me of the AT fields in Ava. 
that it's the distance between us all. Oh, does it? <laughs> what? Most interesting, Eliana. Most interesting. Well, that wraps up our subtle knife lantern slides. So moving into the amber spyglass, the meat of the matter. Mary thought the Malefa had no history, but that was because the history she'd been taught in school was about politics, the clash of nation-states, the rise and fall of empires. In her time among the Malefa, she learned about a different kind of history. They'd forgotten nothing they'd ever known, and such things as the story of the Great Storm of 15,000 years before, or the discovery of the cord fiber plant, or the week-long ride of the one survivor of the South Shore earthquake nursing his broken wheel as he had to cross country to keep out of the floods, were all the subject of lengthy and complex recital, embroidered and counterpointed by the teller and the listeners jointly. Mary was not with them for long enough to discover whether they had any concept of fiction, or whether indeed those tales were remembered or invented. I love this conceptualization of stories that Mary has in this passage, right, of like, what do the Mulefa have as far as tradition and story? Like, they only have history. They don't have fictional stories yet. Have they come up with, you know, like, an actual, like, Jack and Jill, the Mulefa went up the hill and came tumbling down. Yes, or Little Red Riding Hood, only by Rogue Doll. Just kidding, that would make Pullman mad. But it makes me want to come back to one of the oldest stories ever told in time that we have history of that goes back to 2100 BC, which is the Epic of Gilgamesh, an epic Mesopotamian poem. Uh, It originated from Sumerian poems about Gilgamesh, which was later combined into an epic in Akkadian. The first surviving version of the poem was an old Babylonian version from the 18th century BC, titled Surpassing All Other Kings, but was later translated as He Who Sees the Unknown. The story starts off, if you don't know it, covering in the first half King Gilgamesh and Enkaidu, a man created by the gods to stop Gilgamesh's oppression. Enkaidu challenges Gilgamesh to test their strengths, and Gilgamesh wins. They become friends and journey to the cedar forest to slay the guardian, Humbaba the Terrible, and cut down his sacred cedar. The goddess Ishtar sends the bull of heaven down to punish Gilgamesh for spurning her, and Gilgamesh and Enkaidu kill the bull of heaven. Enkaidu is sentenced to death, and in the second half of the story, Gilgamesh goes on a journey to discover eternal life, but when he gets there, he learns that eternal life does not exist. In history, though, his name and accomplishments become eternalized, surviving from this life that he lived. Um, So a couple of really prominent themes of the story, right? Like fighting the gods, killing uh, something sent by heaven to defeat you, protecting free will. Free will. Free him. Free will. But yeah, I mean, like what you're saying about these stories getting passed on, I think that's a big part of what Pullman is saying here. And it kind of strikes me because I just watched a play today called The Infinite Tales that were inspired by Irish mythology and the, I'm going to fuck up this, I'm going to fuck up this pronunciation. Uh, the Tua de Danon, which were like a race of demigods or something in Irish mythology. And um, a big part of that play and its adaptation was this idea of telling stories, remembering the names and passing that on and in doing so making things eternal same as Gilgamesh, right? And 
I just love that Pullman digs into this idea of the oral tradition or oral history. Uh, there is a slight difference. The oral tradition, of course, is what we all know. It's how you pass on these stories to other people. And oral history, I think, is the more academic, formalized version of that. But I mean, if the Malefa, like, if this is how they are doing their history, if they're codifying it in this way and they're aware of it, I would say it's, it is its own field among them. Yeah. And like... So the oral tradition in history incorporates more as opposed to like the way that Mary was taught it about politics, clash of nation states. It includes those things, but it has, it focuses on like memories, right? It asks people their interpretation of history and pieces that together from like memories or everyday life, their accounts of significant events, but knowing how people lived was important too. You have stories that were passed down through things like Lee Scoresby's mother's ring as this, Lantern slide said, and that's how you end up building that cultural identity. That's what makes a Malefa human. Um, and of course, that ties into the tell them stories lesson at the end of this amber spyglass of how they get past the the harpies with the eye boogies. No. And a lot of religions, right? They passed on their teachings using that oral tradition. I think Buddhism and Hinduism and Jainism are amongst those most prominent, but there are a lot of other ones. Uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey actually started out um, by Homer, started out likely as these epic poems that were told by people all the time. People remembered like certain verses or specific phrases and memorized like the story. And those weren't written down in these long poems mm -hmm. until later on. There's like actually a lot of other parts to the story that we don't know. Those are lost because we haven't kept telling them. And also probably because they weren't written down, but because people stopped telling them anyway. But what is described here, that complex recital embroidered and counterpointed by the teller and the listeners jointly. This is exactly what that looks like. Those at oral tradition, they, people use recital techniques that uses verse, specific phrases, other like sorts of devices to help remember these things and pass it on. And I think the question of like, What's fiction versus reality? I mean, like, whether the tales are invented or remembered, there's a lot of things in our history that get changed, right? People truly believe that George Washington had wooden teeth, right? <laughs> but he didn't. He had teeth made of, like, a bajillion other things, including lead, and that ended up poisoning his mouth and gave him a really bad time. But, like... The wooden teeth has in many ways kind of become part of that history because it's a tale that's like told over and over again. And that's part of what that makes up that culture. And I think the kinds of stories that the Malefa will value and what they're telling here, that gives you an idea of what's important to them, their way of life. And it helps them pass on their morals and values to each generation, makes history this very communal and shared activity that the entire group is responsible for. And you also have to look at have they been able to have a history like this before or a story to tell. Um, in times of war, a lot of groups aren't able to have this kind of communal shared activity. So the goal, of course, is peace. Peace to be able to write your story. Yes, yes. Isn't that what we all want? Peace. I mean, yeah, actually, though. A lot of people do. <laughs> I don't know. Some people, I think, probably don't. That's because they profit off it. Terrible, terrible. Well... The next lantern slide is a tender memory from Will about Balthamos and Baruch. 
Yes. Candle mint cake and the delicate, fastidious curiosity of Balthamos as he nibbled the edge of it. For the rest of his life, the taste of sugared peppermint brought that picture back to Will's mind, and he was there again, beside the smoky little fire with the stream splashing in the darkness nearby. Oh, so beautiful. This is just, yeah, another one of those that's just like... Beautiful. Yeah, it's there to add color, but hits hard. Like the intro song, every time, hits hard. For the next lantern slide. In Lyra's world, demons, in the world of the Malefa, the oil-bearing wheels. Both ways of making the workings of dust apparent. In our world, what? So I think this is just Philip Pullman telling everyone, do something and experience life, because that's what dust is. It's a manifestation of that. But also, dear listeners... I'm curious, what are you, some of your favorite, maybe, examples of the way that you think you're seeing dust occur in your life, in our world? Literal dust when you're standing in oh front God. of a window where there's sunlight and it's all sparkly. I love that. I love Me too. looking at that. And then I think about it, then I'm like, is everything Dead dirty? Cells. I was like, do I need to clean? Ew. Uh, I do think, I like what you said about Pullman saying, go experience life. I think it's interesting that the oil-bearing wheels, and even, like I said, there's a certain oil, a floral oil, Mm -hmm. rose oil we're going to talk about someday. Um, It makes me wonder if these are really supposed to be comparable to resources, right? Hmm. Natural resources. Hmm. And preserving it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see some of that in the the flip side of what that looks like when you don't, with Chittagaze. Yeah, and... With Azriel, with what happens with his war and what war does when you wage war, what happens to the planet's climate? Yeah. And Free thinker. And how they have to preserve all of the dust eventually. And they're like, we gotta close all the windows. Sorry. Hmm. Except for the single one. Another lantern slide about Will. The sense his hand and mind had learned together as the point of the knife searched among the tiniest particles of the air. The sense of feeling without touching of knowing without spoiling, I haven't mastered that yet, of apprehending without calculating. He never lost it. When he was a medical student, he had to pretend to make a wrong diagnosis occasionally. His success was in danger of looking supernatural. Once he was qualified, it became safer to go straight to the right answer, and then began the lifelong process of learning to explain it. The opposite problem that Lyra has. Exactly. But I'm going to throw it out there. He has the answer, but has to get to it. Yes. Yes. I'm going to throw it out there because, yes, Will, your success is slightly. It doesn't just look supernatural. It mildly is, is what it sounds like to me. I don't know what was written. But yeah, like you said, it is the opposite of, like, Lyra's, like, because she kind of lost her ability and she used to be able to just go straight to the answer and she told, well from here on out your job is to figure out how to understand it consciously and i think but there is a way it kind of parallels each other's because like it is still for both of them a journey of understanding and explaining because will's diagnosing Mm -hmm. by instinct but and you can diagnose a problem but that doesn't mean you're prescribing the solution like literally i think literally that that's how medicine that's how doctors work right right (laughs) right and like it's yeah, diagnosing isn't the same as knowing how to heal, and it's same as Lyra still needing, if she's going to read the alethiometer again, needing to study it to understand it better. And Right. I, I do like that we get this glimpse of Will 
And we get a lot about Myra because obviously Philip Pullman is more interested in exploring the world that he's created as opposed to Will's navigating ours. But I do like that we learned that Will became a doctor. It makes sense for him. You know, I mean, in some ways, we have to get some sort of will in the last book of dust. I mean, I he want has it. purposefully avoided will in the books of dust so far. He's thought about him, has not brought him in. It has to happen, right? But it might not, because like maybe that's how life is. You know, it's like shut up. Elliot. Sorry, you didn't get the fucking cool video sphere of Titus. Titus, all right, you don't get the fucking Final Fantasy X two perfect ending. Well, that's bullshit, and I want a <laughs> refund. <laughs> On all of this. <laughs> all the knowledge. Mary, absorbed and happy as she fooled around with the lacquer to make her spyglass, fooling around with something she'd never been able to explain to her colleague Oliver, Bain- Oliver Payne, who needed to know where he was going before he got there. Back in Oxford, she gave three of her precious wheel tree seeds to a scientist at the Botanic Garden, a nice man who understood the importance of fooling around. The seedlings are growing well, but she refuses to tell him where they came from. I love, I love this. it. I love this. I love it. The, ah, it's so good. The importance of experimentation. But I like that he calls it fooling around and playing. To Yeah, I'm wondering, is that, are you dating someone? Is it this oh guy God. from the Botanic Garden? I think that's what this means. Oh, it, it could also mean that. It could also mean yeah, that. But... I think he understands the importance of fooling around with oh. Mary Malone. Mary not so Malone. Am I right? She ain't Malonely. Um, <laughs> Malonely Malady. Malonely Malady. But yeah, so yeah, you gotta learn to experiment a little if you're gonna gain knowledge. Can't just and she's be trying to spread Oliver. more dust. Is is Azrael killing Roger? Is that supposed to be fooling around? <sighs> the next slide. <laughs> On the beach, the alethiometer suddenly inert in Lyra's hands, as if it had abandoned her. Just like Will. Damn. Just kidding. Sad. So sad. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sad. Just let me have this. I'm sad. And you already, like, see it, like, right in the books, but there's just he's just adding on this other line that he wasn't able to, Yeah. I guess, incorporate that way. Or he just wanted to remind us again. Whatever. Thanks a lot, Philip. Next lantern slide. An infinity of silvery greens and golds and browns. The whispering of grass in the warm wind. Safety. Sunlight. Oh, that's a beautiful thought. Yeah. It's the same as the alethiometer abandoning her, right? Those last moments of innocence and Eden before she and Will have to part. I mean, nothing's more beautiful than that moment with them, right? Yeah, yeah. Now I'm gonna cry again. And then all, and then I, I love the line. Obviously, we'll get there when Sanafania, whatever. I'm gonna get the name eventually when she's like, everyone, all of the creatures across all the universes, who know what's happening to you, their hearts are breaking for you. And I'm like, yes, yes. Because for one minute, you know, like for one solid moment, they saved everything. Yeah, those kids bravely saved it all. And all they wanted was to get to have the rest of their lives together. Yeah. Nope. Lyra, in the afterlife, moving past whoever she ends up with to go to Will. Right, Lyra knocking people down to get to Will in the afterlife. <laughs> okay. Oh, I, oh yeah, when uh, my partner and I were laying around in bed one day, and I Will Follow You Into the Dark came on by Death Cat for Cutie, and he was like, 
is this Lyra and Will? And I was like, shut the fuck up. It's really painful. <sighs> Mrs. Coulter in the cave watching Will, speculating. Will watching her, speculating. Their words like chess pieces, placed with great care, each carrying an invisible nimbus of implication and possibility and threat. Both afterwards felt as if they had barely escaped with their life. I think it's the fierce protection they both feel over Lyra, maybe, that was competing there. I wasn't sure how to really take this with no more context than this. Um, I'm guessing it's just the intense feeling of protection over Lyra. Yeah, it's that. They're both dangerous people, you know, child murderer. Other <laughs> kind of child murderer. <laughs> I'm proud of that Child one. murderer and child murderer. <laughs> Lyra at 18, sitting intent and absorbed in Duke Humphrey's library with the alethiometer in a pile of leather-bound books, tucking the hair behind her ears, pencil in mouth, finger moving down a list of symbols, Pantelemon holding the stiff old pages open for her. Look, Pan, there's a pattern here, see? That's why they're in that sequence. And it felt as if the sun had come out. It was the second thing she said to Will, next day in the botanic garden. Ow to Will, as in across the worlds from him. <laughs> like when she visited him on their annual visit, which you know she it wasn't annual, you know she went there every day. You know that That's what it sounds like. It sounds to me like she went there every single day. And showing her still working at it come age 18 after losing it is so heartening, right? Like working yes. hard at it and finally getting somewhere. And when you think of how long Fra Pavel or Dame Hannah had to study it, to understand it, getting within four to five years of losing it and understanding it again and starting to get it back, that's really impressive. Yeah, she's finally found something to motivate her to study. Oh my god, all the scholars must be like, oh, thank god, they're doing the sign of the cross. <laughs> but Professor Polstead is out there just like, thank fuck. Yeah, yeah. Um, we discussed this scene a little in, I think, one of our earlier... Northern Lights and Golden Compass slides, but I do love that detail, this last one of her tucking her hair behind her ears. I'm going to pull out a line from the second to the last chapter of The Ember Spyglass. As Ly it, this is around the time that Lyra's finding out that the alethiometer doesn't work for her anymore. She sat down, wiping her cheeks with the palm of one hand and reaching for the rucksack with the other. She carried it everywhere. When Will thought of her in later years, it was often with that little bag over her shoulder. She tucked the hair behind her ears in the swift movement he loved and took out the black velvet bundle. Wow, now I'm going to cry. Yeah, I got tears in my eyes, dude. I know, my God. How are we going to do this podcast? Holy How are we going to do the third book without breaking into tears like every other chapter? My God. Yeah. And even in the TV show. Well, you already cry every episode. Uh, eight out of eight, bitch. <laughs> Uh, Chloe and I are just here wiping our eyes, but it's fine. It's fine. Chloe's gonna have to go on alone now. You know, this is us going into our separate worlds now as she goes into this dusty discussion. Yes, absolutely, and it's not gonna get happier. So, Eliana, <sighs> right. you're gonna have to take your ear ears out, okay. undo your ears. You guys, if you have not read the books of dust which are La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth. At this point, I ask you to join Eliana in a little bit of silence and come on back when you finish them. We are going to chat about just a couple quick things.
All right. I think she's gone, guys. We're good. So let's go back to a part that we talked about earlier of Lyra watching old Piat Van Poppel touching up his boat. This is when Lyra took the rose and lily pattern that he put on his boat and wanted to paint it across her dress until then she realized that it would be better embroidered. And then after that, she was like, this is bad. This is just bad. And she threw the whole thing out. I want to talk, though, about Mrs. Lonsdale, who she had to explain the absence of the dress to. We did chat a little bit about how all of her clothing came from Mrs. Lonsdale. And if you've read La Belle Sauvage and, of course, uh, The Secret Commonwealth, you'll know that Alice Lonsdale is Mrs. Lonsdale, Alice Parslow. Silent, sullen Alice Parslow, haughty with lank, dark hair and lines of discontent already around her mouth and forehead at a young age, would likely have been very secretly amused at this Lyra antic. There is something in The Amber Spyglass that makes me really sad about this. When Lyra said, I just grew up on my own, really. I don't remember anyone ever holding me or cuddling me. It was just me and Pan as far back as I can go. I can't remember Mrs. Lonsdale being like that to me. She was the housekeeper at Jordan College. All she did was make sure I was clean. That's all she thought about. Oh, and manners. But if you've read La Belle Sauvage, you know that Alice went through hell and back for Lyra. She was sexually assaulted. She almost drowned a billion times. She had to clutch Lyra to her chest to keep her warm and alive. She broke in and looted places with Malcolm to keep Lyra safe and dry. Lyra learned a little bit about this in The Secret Commonwealth at age 20, but knowing what it took to get her there is crazy. Lyra had a crush on Dick Orchard is something that we learn above in the lantern slides. And here in the Dusty discussion, I want to talk about The Secret Commonwealth. We talked above about his older description, Dick Orchard's description as he got older and how he looks a bit like Will. I can't believe that Pullman introduced him even back then. Pullman's always wanted a place for Dick Orchard in his story. From the Secret Commonwealth. When Lyra was nine, Dick had been the leader of a gang of boys who hung around the market, and she admired him greatly for his ability to spit further than anyone else. Much more recently, she and he had had a brief but passionate relationship, and what was more, parted friends. I feel like Dick is very much so, like the male Lyra in his story, right? He's a classic male character for her in her usual ropes. He's unable to get over her, dark-haired and handsome, and willing and wanting to help her. In many ways, we re-meet Lyra in what we can imagine is how Marisa was in the prime of her days at college, right? Lyra doesn't really realize at the beginning of The Secret Commonwealth how much privilege she has in her scholastic sanctuary at the college, and she does play Dick Orchard a little bit. Even if they remain friends, it's obvious he's still swooning over her, so I could definitely see where Marisa Van Zee comes in. And finally, did Pullman always have rose oil in the back of his mind as a religious parallel in the Secret Commonwealth? It's possible that this was just a scrap he was always thinking of. We mentioned above some of the oils and scents prominent in religion and the odor of sanctity, but rose oil specifically has a deeper history. Nicholas Culpepper wrote that rose oil strengthens the heart emotionally and physically, and it's cooling. Many have written it strengthens your heart chakra, and that a drop applied to your head, heart, or third eye can strengthen meditation and sight. In the secret commonwealth, rose oil production is under attack by the authority, still around, by the way, 
and the farmers of the product are being terrorized and murdered. Rose oil in story does similar to the idea of opening that heart chakra. Other people have written about this, but it also has numerous medicinal properties, including granting the ability to see dust. These roses grow almost only in the desert, which is the same location of the rumored Blue Hotel where demons that have been separated from their humans have been congregating. The wealth and worth of this oil is stated by authority and magisterium, and we begin to get into the ration stages of the rose oil, even in just rose water, among the faith and scholars. I look forward to seeing how Pullman wraps this up in the third book of Dust. I really don't know at this point. I'm guessing that something to do with Malcolm Polstead's migraine auras that Pullman also gets himself from his migraines, the rose oil, and uh, of course separating is going to come to light that we just don't know about yet. But at this point, Lyra is going on a very dangerous journey to get there. And I truly hope that Malcolm Polstead isn't going to be creepy about his being in love for her. So we will see. Philip Pullman, please do not let me down. You already have a little. <gasps> it's not your fault. It's not your fault. Well, you guys, that was the end of my dusty discussion this time. I am now going to get Eliana's attention and bring her back in so that we can say goodbye to you guys. And hopefully she catches up soon so she can go back and listen to all these. Hello. Hello, hello. Welcome back, Eliana. We were just oh, wow. all talking about you. Wow. Is it about how I still haven't finished the books with us? Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. <laughs> we were all just taking bets. And by oh. we all, I mean me. I don't even need an alethiometer to know. <laughs> well, dusty discussion is over for now. Okay. Everyone clean yourself off. I, you know, super squeaky clean. Just wait till that demon right settles. You sure won't be then. Yeah, wait till demons and dust sends me a statue of my demon. <laughs> when that demon settles. <laughs> when it comes in the mail. Sponsor us. Oh. Well, that's it for lantern slides, you guys. That's it. Wow. Man, that's kind of sad. Do you think that he's going to come up with lantern slides for any of the books of dust? So far, there hasn't been anything in my ebooks, but uh, I haven't checked the physical omnibus copies, so maybe. I mean, it seems like some of these came. He wrote these after the books were all already released, maybe yeah. for like that, like combined edition. So, and we're getting a lot through things like we talked about in the finale episode of season mm -hmm. one. We talked about the EW article. There's an Entertainment Weekly article that has a lot of cool behind-the-scenes stuff that confirms some theories from Pullman. I imagine we're going to get a lot of stuff through interviews and things like that with Jack Thorne and the other executive producers on his Dark Materials. True, true, true. Uh, he is consulting pretty deeply, it seems, with Pullman, especially when it comes to Asriel's character, which I found interesting, which might have something to do with why the ebooks have Asriel slides. Oh, yeah, which I, I'll i have to take a look at those at some point. Those seem interesting. And, like, the ends of the novellas, right, for Once Upon a Time in the North and even Lyra's has, it's not quite, like, notes, but they're, like, little clippings and and things that kind of add color in the same way that it seems the notes do. Yeah, and I love that. I love having that, so I will take more and more and yeah. more of that. Yes. All right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us 
for this Patreon episode and for another year of Girls Gone Canon and 100 public episodes. My God. <laughs> yeah, we set it up top, but we could not do this without you guys. You guys are basically what allows us to pump out episodes week after week and keep giving you some good content. So please do reach out. Let us know what you want to see in 2020. Uh, we have lots to come, lots of ideas, and lots of innovations taking place at GGC headquarters. And as we said up top, next month, January, our episode will be about the Maiden Vault. Yes, complete with Ice and FireCon 2017 lore. Yes. Oh my God, I forgot of the Maiden That's Vault. Right. That was called. <laughs> that was called the Maiden Vault. That's true. Yes. Man. Yes. Also, yeah. That was, that was man. That, that's something. It was okay. Twenty seventeen, big decade, big year in my decade. As agreed, we turned into twenty twenty. <laughs> Thanks again, you guys. We will talk to you very soon, and see you next month for the Maiden Vault. Goodbye.